0: Hi, I'm Andrew. I'm Kirsten. And this is Most Foul. It's so good to see you.
1: I love seeing you. I really do feel like I see you when we do these episodes because we're face-to-face. All our other communication and we text, we're not phone people. So it's so nice to see you.
0: Yes. Uh text.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started.
0: <laughs> I already saw uh someone's homemade Halloween costume yes. is like a poster board over the shoulders and it's an iPhone screen and it's a picture of Nancy Pelosi and it's it was like "Hi Sean, it's me, Nancy Pelosi." Are you going to join me in the fight against the MAGA extremist by donating $27 today? <laughs> we gotta have a blue wave in this, hashtag blue wave in this country. Stand with me. To stop, here, or to stop getting these text messages, please put stop. And it's, it's the next bubble is stop. And then it says why are you mad at me? (laughs) And then it says (laughs) stop again in all caps. And then the last text bubble is just, why are you poor?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag topical Halloween costumes.
0: I love it. It was very, very funny to me.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I know that if I'm ever murdered, knock on wood, don't murder me. Um, But if I am, I think the secret to it all will be in my text messages somewhere. Like, I know it'll be one of those, well, this is not actually Kirsten texting because it has capitalization (laughs) or periods or something that's totally not like me.
0: I could, I think I could tell, except I wouldn't necessarily be like, this isn't Kirsten. I'd be like, are you mad?
1: (laughs) yeah like remember the time that you responded to me and it was like autocorrect and i was like what have i done to him (laughs) he hates me (laughs) but you wouldn't think this isn't cursed until after you found out i had been murdered and then you'd be like wait that weird text yeah so i'm relying on you andrew if this thing that will never happen happens
0: This is going to give a glimpse into our recording timeline, but also RIP to Angela Lansbury. Oh
1: my god, I was devastated. So the timeline of it actually happening was this. I was sitting talking to my mom because I'm home during the days as I recover. I'm sitting at home talking to my mom and I get an alert on my phone from the New York Times about her dying So immediately, I just stop my conversation with my mom, probably mid-sentence, and I start making a post for our story, and my husband calls me from work, which he never does, and he's like, honey, I'm so sorry, and I knew exactly he was calling me to send his Mm -hmm. condolences (laughs) because she is my hero, like Angela Lansbury and Jessica Fletcher, both of them, and I I. I'm not insane. I know that they're not the same, but both of them are such an inspiration to me.
0: And people don't understand the incredible mega talent. And I mean, Broadway royalty. Totally.
1: So accomplished, so talented and probably would have had an even more huge career if she was more quote conventionally attractive but the fact that she wasn't quote conventionally attractive and she still was so incredibly talented and famous and successful like that speaks a lot to who she was
0: she brought the orchestra to tears when she recorded the title track for beauty and the beast
1: oh my gosh i'm getting i'm getting goosebumps andrew
0: she did murder she wrote for years after she wanted to Mm -hmm. to keep her friends and old stars on health insurance by having them as acting in the show so they could keep their screen actors guild health insurance yeah
1: she saved her children from charles manson by moving to ireland
0: yeah that's wild and she quit acting to help them recover past their drug addiction yeah or not just acting but like all acting like broadway film tv
1: i mean just an incredible person and human being and she created a template for women to look forward to what post-midlife life can be
0: and then (laughs) it's just funny her like the reach of, like, there's this post going around. It's a a screenshot with captions of one of the episodes of Murder, She Wrote. And <laughs> it's essentially the chemical that's, like, the gay drug poppers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's, like, smelling something and it's, like, if I'm not mistaken, it's this chemical, which I can't think of off the top of my <laughs> head. So then gay Twitter is also, like... <laughs> Not Jessica knowing about poppers.
1: <laughs> I love it. I mean, she's so memeable. And I love throwing a good J.B. Fletcher gif into a conversation as appropriate. And pretty much it's always... I mean, there's a, there's a J.B. gif for just about every occasion.
0: I know this is hyper specific to my age, but like the real sort of like childhood childhood connection to her as mrs potts Mm -hmm. like she was so comforting and then murder she wrote was on all the time and then a lot of the old movies she was in were like because we were kind of an old movie household Mm -hmm. (laughs) so she was a big part of my childhood
1: Well, I described her the other day as the thinking person's Betty White. Like, all of the emotions and big feels that people had about Betty White, I'm having them now about Angela.
0: It will be no surprise to anyone, but I'm going to have a problem the day that Dolly Parton goes.
1: (laughs) Andrew, what the fuck? So uncalled for. How dare you even... Let those words cross your lips. Ugh.
0: It, it will not be okay. <laughs> it will not happen.
1: That's not going to happen. Andrew.
0: The celebrity that finally breaks me. <laughs>
1: you're talking nonsense. She is immortal. She is a goddess sent from above. It will never happen. And shut your fucking mouth right now.
0: It's very funny that you probably don't know that one of her perfumes is called scent from above.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I totally did not, but she is. And it's very on the nose, but not in a cringe way because she, by definition, cannot be cringe.
0: The imagination library just started in California.
1: Mm, Yeah. Take it back. Take it all back. actually i was just thinking of you because um i was somewhere where was i i was looking online and they had a whole thing of dolly t-shirts and i was like oh maybe i can find one for andrew but there just wasn't one that fit so i didn't force it but i'm always thinking of you and her and us and our whole magical thing that we have together that she doesn't know anything about
0: Not my exact hometown, because it's technically a different city, but the Mississippi coast is essentially a singular place. (laughs) Even though there are, like, lots of little cities and towns, like, that coast, that, like, 26 miles of coastline is, like, a region.
1: (laughs) It's like Rhode Island. Rhode Island is just one big town.
0: (laughs) Yeah, so Bay St. Louis, Mississippi, has a yearly dolly parton festival where everybody dresses up like her and it's all (laughs) themed about her
1: that's amazing Uh, i still want that neon sign that says dolly parton vibes that i found on the internet years ago that i've never been able to source maybe it was a (laughs) custom thing but i want one
0: (laughs) that's for when we have the big bucks
1: yeah totally when we make it both get one of those and hang them in our houses. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe one day we'll actually have a podcast office. We could hang it in the lobby.
0: Where the guests all have to dress like Dolly (laughs) Parton. Well, as much as I am enjoying this, should we go back into our awful, awful story? I
1: know. I feel guilty now for laughing so heartily when we have such horrific things to talk about. But that is what we're here for so today we're going to pick up where we left off in part two and we're going to continue talking about the reign of terror of son of sam and happily is the search for the son of sam the apprehension of the son of sam and what became of this tremendous piece of shit yeah yeah You ready to dive in?
0: Let's go for it.
1: All right. For a while, things seemed to return to the normal level of New York City mayhem again, as you talked about last week, Andrew. Christmas and New Year's came and went with no more incidents. But at about 1240 a.m. on January 30th, 1977, Secretary Christine Freund, who was 26, and her fiancé, bartender John Deal, who was 30, were sitting in John's car near the Forest Hills-Long Island Railroad Station in Queens. Three gunshots suddenly penetrated their car. And in a panic, John drove away for help, similar to the earlier case. He suffered minor, kind of superficial injuries, but Christine was shot twice, and she died several hours later at the hospital. Ugh. I know, it's so tragic. And... Again, in this case, neither victim had seen the attacker. Police at this point made the first public acknowledgement that the friend deal shooting was similar to the earlier incidents and that the crimes might be connected. All of the victims had been struck with 44 caliber bullets and the shooting seemed to target young women with long dark hair. NYPD Sergeant Richard Conlin stated that police were quote, leaning towards a connection in all these cases, end quote. Composite sketches were released at that time of the reportedly black-haired Loria Valenti suspect and the reportedly blonde Lamino Damasi suspect. And Conlin noted at the time that police were looking for multiple suspects, not just one. So to summarize here, they thought that the cases were connected, but they really were taking those eyewitness statements at face value and believe that they had more than one suspect here a dark-haired mm-hmm. one and a blonde one
0: and it is a world in which wigs and hair dye exist
1: right right but for whatever reason they thought they had they thought they had multiple suspects now fast forward about a month and it's 7:30 p.m. on March 8th, 1977 So not our usual time that these crimes are happening. And Columbia University student Virginia Voskerchian, who was 19, was walking home from school when she was confronted by an armed man. She lived about a block from where Christine had been shot. And in a desperate move to defend herself, Virginia lifted her textbooks between her and the killer, but the shield was penetrated by the high caliber bullet and it struck her in the head and killed her on the scene. Two days later, on March 10, 1977, NYPD officials and Mayor Abraham Beam held a press conference at which they declared that the same 44 caliber Bulldog revolver had fired the shots that killed Donna Loria and Virginia. Official documents were later revealed, though, saying that police strongly suspected that the same 44 bulldog had been used in the shootings, but the evidence was actually inconclusive.
0: Interesting. Yeah.
1: The crimes were covered everywhere, as you can imagine. I mean, we've seen this many times, but the city is now gripped with fear. They were discussed by the local media almost every day, if not every single day. And circulation increased dramatically for the New York Post and the Daily News, tabloid newspapers with graphic crime reporting and, you know, commentary, we'll call it that. That's a very elevated uh, way to describe it. Yeah. (laughs) Even foreign media featured a lot of the reports of the crimes as well. So this was just kind of taking over. Everyone was, you know, frightened. In New York, Mm -hmm. but around the world, people were captivated with this crime. At about 3 a.m. on April 17th, 1977, Alexander Assau, 20, who was a tow truck operator, and Valentina Soriani, who was 18, and a Lehman College student and aspiring actress and model, were sitting in a car belonging to Alexander's brother on the Hutchinson River Parkway service road in the Bronx which was about a block from Valentina's home and only a few blocks away from the scene of the first shooting. A resident of a nearby building heard four shots and immediately called the police. Valentina who was sitting on the driver's side was shot once and Alexander was hit twice, both times in the head. Valentina died at the scene and Alexander died in the hospital a few hours later without ever being able to describe his attacker. Hmm. Police said that the weapon used for this crime was the same as the one that they had seen in the earlier shootings. But this time, they finally had one other major clue. Police found a handwritten letter addressed to NYPD Captain Joseph Borelli near the crime scene and they believed it had been written by the killer. In this letter, the killer identified himself as quote, son of Sam for the first time. And the press had previously been calling this killer the 44 caliber killer because of the weapon. This letter wasn't released to the public in its entirety at the time, but some of its contents were revealed to the press and almost immediately the son of Sam name replaced the old 44 caliber killer name. Now, I'm not going to read the entire letter because it's fairly long and you can see pictures of it online and we have them linked in our show notes, but I'll read just maybe the first sentence here. The killer expressed that he was determined to continue killing in this way and he was taunting the police for not being able to catch him. Quote, I am deeply hurt by your calling me a woman hater. I am not, but I am a monster. I am the son of Sam. I am a little brat. When Father Sam gets drunk, he gets mean. He beats his family. Sometimes he ties me up in the back of the house. And he goes on and on and on, and he's giving his rationale and, you know, really just word vomit, honestly. But staking his claim, he wants to be known, he wants to be seen. And again, this harkens back to the Zodiac in many ways. At the time, police speculated that the letter writer might be familiar with Scottish English. The letter used the phrase, quote, me hoot it hurts, sunny boy. And that was taken as a Scottish accented version of my heart it hurts sunny boy. And the police also kind of attached to this theme of a dark haired nurse who he blamed for his father's death and you know, so they were really trying to dissect the letter and gain any kind of insights that they could from it.
0: And again, I this is just speculation, but I feel like pathetic person trying to copy the Zodiac. Yeah. Again, Zodiac pathetic too, but there's just something like the derangedness in this letter, how stupid it is, the misspellings. It feels like just desperately wanting to be special.
1: Yeah. Totally, totally. Now, you know, now looking back 40, almost 50 years later, it's kind of, mm, what's it called? Not common knowledge, but popular wisdom that killers who write into the media have certain characteristics. But at the time, I think this was still kind of a new area and there were some conflicting opinions about that but police released a psychological profile of their suspect on May 26, 1977. Again, this was only made possible by the fact that they had this new clue, this letter that they felt gave them some insight into the mentality or the mind behind these crimes. In the profile, the killer was described as neurotic and probably having paranoid schizophrenia, which hashtag trigger. Like, we now know that people with severe mental illness, particularly schizophrenia, are much more likely to be victims of violent crime than they are to commit violent crime. But again, I'm just talking about what the profile said, not what I think of it. Mm -hmm. Also interesting to note is that in this profile, the psychologist believed that the killer believed himself to be a victim of demonic possession. So, very interesting to note that here. On May 30th, 1977, so not very long after the crime and the letter, the killer writes another letter. And this time, instead of leaving it at a crime scene, he delivers it to Daily News columnist Jimmy Breslin. And the handwritten letter looked very similar, and it was from someone who claimed to be the forty-four caliber killer. So interesting to note here that instead of Son of Sam, which, you know, they had previously coined the name, they're referring to this previous name. And the letter was postmarked early that same day in Englewood, New Jersey, so suburb of the city to the south. On the back of the envelope, neatly handprinted in... Four centered lines were the words blood and family, darkness and death, absolute depravity, 44 caliber. Now in this, again, I won't read the whole thing, but you can go and, and take a look at it. Um, he starts out, hello from the gutters of New York City, which are filled with dog manure, vomit, stale wine, urine, and blood. Hello from the sewers of New York City which swallow up these delicacies when they are washed away by the sweeper trucks. And it goes on and on like this. But you can see here, I mean, this is maybe one of the better descriptions. Again, hearkening back to part one. This part sounds now like maybe hyperbole or the mind of a deranged killer. But when you know what you talked about in the last episode, Andrew, it feels more and more like just a very kind of level-headed description of the time.
0: Especially cutting sanitation workers by the percentages they did.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so in this letter, he goes on and, you know, claims responsibility for some of the previous crimes and, and just kind of more of the word vomit of his psychopathy out on the written page. But underneath the Son of Sam's signature was a logo or sketch that combined several symbols. Now, again, Zodiac, like, this is just so copycat vibes here. Mm -hmm. And next to this sketch was a question. What will you have for July 29th? Now, if you remember back to the beginning of this episode, July 29th was the date of the first shooting crime. So the writer here is referencing the first known crime attributed to Son of Sam, and it was considered a threat. The journalists obviously notified police, and they thought that the letter was probably from someone with knowledge of the shootings. Mm Mm-hmm but they didn't necessarily believe it was from the son of Sam himself. The daily news did publish the letter a week later after agreeing with police to withhold parts of it for the sake of the investigation. And Breslin, the journalist urged the killer to surrender. The article made that day's paper the highest selling edition of the daily news to this day, to this day. So again, almost 50 years. They sold more than 1.1 million copies. Police received thousands of tips based on references in the publicized portions of the letter, all of which, again, as is pretty typical in these kinds of situations, proved useless. All of the victims to date at this point had long dark hair, so women throughout New York City started cutting their hair short, um, and doing things to try to decrease the chances that they would be targeted by the killer.
0: Yeah, my mom cut and dyed her hair with uh, Bundy because she was a college-aged girl with longish brown hair. So there's photos of her with, like, a blonde bob.
1: <laughs> I do want to say, though, as an aside here, at what point does it become ki- the killers hate women? Because if you think of the mid-70s or the early 70s, I mean, more women have dark hair, have brunette hair than any other color, right? That's just statistics. And then in the 70s, long, straight, pressed, iron, straight hair was the fashion. So, I mean, we're talking like 85 I don't know, maybe that's too high, percent of young women had that hairstyle. So when do we start just saying these guys are just misogynists, you know?
0: Well, you know, society doesn't like to do that. They don't (laughs) like to uh, talk about misogyny. It's always individual, uh, specific issues with specific women. So this fake nurse that killed his dad or... Well, I guess Bundy was really modeled after his first, air quote, love. Yeah. But uh, it's never, never looked bigger at the question.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, little aside there, my little rant for the episode. Well, not even a month after this letter went out, on June 26, 1977... Sal Lupo, who was a 20-year-old mechanics helper, and Judy Placido, a 17-year-old recent high school graduate, left a club in Bayside, Queens, and they were sitting in Sal's car at about 3 a.m. Without warning, three gunshots were fired into the car. Sal was wounded in the right forearm while Judy was shot in the right temple, shoulder, and the back of her neck miraculously both victims survived their injuries lupo in fact told police later that they had been discussing the son of sam case only moments before the shooting Oof! i know like in so many of the earlier crimes neither sal nor judy had seen their attacker but two witnesses nearby reported a tall dark-haired man in a leisure suit fleeing from the area One claimed to see him leave in a car and even supplied a partial license plate number. So again, the first anniversary of the first shooting crime was approaching at this point. And police established a really big dragnet that emphasized past hunting grounds in Queens and the Bronx. Mm -hmm. They had patrols going on, they were pulling people over, they were driving through kind of quiet residential neighborhoods. I think looking for a yellow compact car and this partial license plate, but the so-called son of Sam wasn't done with his horrific reign just yet. Early on July 31st, 1977, near Bath Beach in Brooklyn, so again, not one of the boroughs that was part of this dragnet in anticipation of the anniversary secretary stacy moskowitz and salesman robert violante who were both 20 were sitting in robert's car on their first date a man approached very close to the car within three feet of the passenger side of the car and suddenly fired four rounds through the window and it struck both victims in the head the man then ran off through a nearby park robert lost his left eye but Stacy died from her injuries. Later that night, Detective John Filodico was told to report to the 10th Homicide Division at the 60th Precinct Station House in Coney Island, which is in Brooklyn. He was given two weeks to work on the Moskowitz-Violante case as a normal murder investigation. He was told if it couldn't be solved in that time frame, it was going to be given to the Son of Sam task force. Finally, the police started catching some breaks in this case, and it was under the investigative umbrella of Detective Pelotico. A local resident was walking her dog at the scene of this last crime when she saw a patrol officer ticketing a car that was parked near a fire hydrant. After the traffic police had left, a young man walked past her from the area of the car and seemed to kind of be checking her out. She felt concerned because he was wielding in his hand some kind of, quote, dark object, which in hindsight she thought might be a gun. hmm She ran to her house. You know, he creeped her out. She ran home, and as she was running away, she heard shots fired behind her in the street.
0: Terrifying.
1: Right? So she was scared to death, and she didn't go to police right away with this information. Four days later, she finally contacted them, and she told them about what she had seen, the person she passed, and the ticket, most importantly, the parking ticket. That was on August 9th, 1977. From here, the police finally, finally have a string in this giant ball of yarn that they can start pulling. So the police begin going through every ticket that had been given in that area on that night. And within this pile of tickets, they came up with a yellow 1970 Ford Galaxy who was registered to David Berkowitz. On that day, Detective James Justice called the Yonkers Police Department, which is where Berkowitz was living at the time, and asked them to schedule an interview with him. They wanted to talk to him. He's mm-hmm. now on the radar. The Yonkers police dispatcher who first took the call was a person named Wheat Carr and had knowledge of Berkowitz from other activities in the Yonkers community. As soon as Justice mentioned Berkowitz's name to her, she said, quote, let me tell you about him. I know him. He lives right behind me, end quote. And she went on to tell Detective Justice that Berkowitz had shot and wounded her dog Harvey and that dog was her father's dog and and any guesses what her father's name was it was Sam it was Sam and so you know in those letters he had referenced Son of Sam and he had talked about demonic possession of a dog a dog that barked and now here we have he is a known entity who has assaulted a dog who belongs to a guy named Sam.
0: With a gun.
1: With a gun. And so I'm sure if you're that police officer, I mean, it's hard to imagine what must have been going through him at that time, but every kind of elation and excitement, right? So Detective Justice asks the Yonkers police for help tracking him down. He finds out that... Berkowitz has been up to weird shit in Yonkers as well, which is why Wheat Carr knew of him. There were cult accusations and kinds of weird stuff besides the shooting of the dog. Yonkers investigators told Detective Justice at the time that they thought Berkowitz might be good for the Son of Sam crimes. So the following day, August 10th, 1977, police found Berkowitz's car. And it was parked outside his apartment building at 35 Pine Street in Yonkers. And when they found the car, they saw a gun in the back seat. And so they immediately searched it. They found a duffel bag that was full of ammunition, maps of the crime scenes, and a threatening letter addressed to Inspector Timothy Dowd of the Son of Sam task force. So rather than kind of capturing or impounding it they decided to wait and see if berkowitz would leave the apartment and they could grab him then rather than kind of barging in and trying to get him inside not knowing if he had more guns or what they might find they also wanted to get a search warrant for the apartment when he left the apartment around 10 p.m he went to his car and detective john Filatico approached the driver's side and pointed his gun close to berkowitz's temple and another detective pointed his gun from the passenger side. A paper bag containing a 44 caliber Bulldog revolver, like we had seen in all of the crimes before, was found next to Berkowitz in the car. And he stated when they approached, quote, well, you got me, end quote. Detectives describe their memory of this arrest and they describe a big, inexplicable smile on his face as they arrested him.
0: Piece of shit.
1: Yeah. Pretty much. So they waited for the search warrant to come in on his apartment, and they went in to search when that arrived, and they found it in complete disarray. They found graffiti on the wall. Some of it looked satanic. Um, They found diaries that he had kept forever, notes of arsons that he had set that went back many, many years. Some sources even put that number at over a thousand arsons. So earlier when we were talking about us setting little fires in the country as kids, like, you know, 1,400 (laughs) fires that he set around New York City. God. Right. Right. The following day, August 11th, 1977, police interrogated Berkowitz for about 30 minutes in the morning, and he really quickly confessed to the shootings. He even said that he wanted to plead guilty. During questioning, he claimed that his neighbor's dog was one of the reasons that he killed, stating that the dog demanded the blood of pretty young girls. And he said that, the sam mentioned in the first letter was his former neighbor sam carr and that harvey the dog that he had shot was possessed by an ancient demon who told him to kill a few weeks after his capture berkowitz was permitted to communicate with the press and in a letter to the new york post dated september 19 1977 he talked about the story of demonic possession but he closed the letter with a warning that has been interpreted by some investigators as an admission of criminal accomplices. He said, quote, "There are other sons out there. God help the world End quote." At a press conference in February 1979, though, Berkowitz declared that his previous claims of demonic possession were a hoax, and he later stated in a series of meetings, That he had long contemplated murder to get revenge on a world that he felt had rejected and hurt him. So after he was apprehended and confessed, officials had three separate mental health examinations performed on him. They wanted to find out if he was competent to stand trial. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And all three of them agreed he was competent to stand trial. But his defense lawyers still advised him to enter a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity, and he refused to do that. Berkowitz appeared in court on May 8, 1978, and calmly, he pleaded guilty to all of the shootings. At his sentencing two weeks later, he really caused an outrage when he attempted to jump out of a window of the seventh floor courtroom that he was in. But he was restrained and he then had an outburst, which I don't want to quote because it's really vile and it doesn't really move the story in any direction. But it did prompt the court to order another psychiatric examination. During that evaluation, Berkowitz drew a sketch of a jailed man surrounded by numerous walls. At the bottom, he wrote, quote, I'm not well, not well at all, end quote. But even in this fourth review of his sanity, he was found competent to stand trial. So on June 12, 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison for each murder to be served consecutively. He was ordered to serve his time in Attica, the infamous Attica, a supermax prison in upstate New York. And... Despite prosecutors' objections, the terms of his guilty plea made him eligible for parole in 25 years from that date, which has long since passed.
0: Which is insane. I mean, not that they would grant parole, but it's like, you can't give a serial killer parole.
1: (laughs) I know. But I do think there's a lot to this that, you know, you and I, our take is similar in that it's so cowardly the way that he committed his crimes, but I think another take is they were somehow, and I'm making the most disgusted face uh, like tell the listeners how disgusted I look right now. <laughs> I, I think she's that,
0: disgusted.
1: I think that the court sees these as less less repugnant, you know.
0: It doesn't take away the fact that they're a serial killer with a compulsion to kill.
1: I know, but I mean, we've seen so much. Like, you know, we when we started this, we we talked about the intersection between crime and culture. And I think, at least for me, you can speak for yourself, I conceived of it as kind of a one-way thing. Crime, culture, crime, culture. It's pushing in the culture direction. But I think that the culture impacts crimes that are later committed and also impacts how we conceive of them. So he's somehow less dangerous less disturbed less something because these are not those really gruesome hands-on psychosexual things but i mean the underpinnings of it i think are really similar it's just his mo is different yeah i don't know it's really interesting um and just so sad i mean in the end so many victims and even though not all of them died from their injuries, I mean, life-changing, life-changing injuries. hmm Completely devastating, life-altering injuries. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's very tragic. I do think, you know, probably some of the impetus for... The possibility of Pearl is that he gave some, quote, closure to the families by accepting responsibility. But, I mean, just really, ugh, gross. Yeah. But, you know, when I said about the wild speculating part, listeners might be wondering what is there to even speculate about because he confessed. He later even confessed to the stabbing crime that police had never suspected, anything about but at the end when he talked about accomplices and other sons out there there are folks who believe that that is true and there is a whole portion of the web dedicated to figuring that out they reference the satanic drawings the cult activity in yonkers at the time and some of this is documented some of it i think is speculation But going back to this idea of multiple, you know, police initially thought they had multiple people. They had different color hair, you know, so there's a lot of speculating that can be done here.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you imagine incels Mm -hmm. connecting with each other. Mm
1: -hmm. And back in the olden times when they did it kind of in person, which makes it harder to do but when they do do it I think makes it harder to unravel because there's no digital trail like there would be today
0: man what a piece of shit
1: yeah so you know he was definitely a bad bad dude I don't think he for one moment was possessed I think he was just (laughs) a bad dude who had seen some stuff was of above average intelligence and so he had figured out some ways to manipulate investigators, to manipulate the facts of the case, to throw the scent off. But in the end, I think, was just a really cold-blooded, disturbed individual. Mm-hmm. Who may or may not have been part of a cult who also killed women. Maybe other women. Nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I'm not... I don't want to fan any conspiracies here, but... That could almost be a whole other episode.
0: Yeah. And then next week we'll look at some legal implications of this case as well as the more traditional impact it's made in pop culture and what those ripple effects look like.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm. It's a big one. It's a big one. Yeah. I know we said this week was bite-sized, but I don't know if this is going to be bite-sized.
0: No, it's long. <laughs> <laughs>
1: But so interesting. And, again, these victims... I didn't do a deep dive, but just so unfair. I think probably some of these victims are still alive and living with this. You know? To think of it, it seems so far in the past, but it wasn't that long ago.
0: Yeah. Ugh.
1: Yeah. Shit bag of the day.
0: Yep. Yeah, definitely tune in next week uh, as we wrap up the son of sam and talk about some interesting pieces
1: mm, can't wait to hear that part
0: as always we appreciate the hell out of you
1: abs fucking please head over to apple podcast and rate and review our show it really helps us out plus we'll read five-star reviews on an upcoming episode
0: this has been a facts from janet production